Welcome to the MedThread podcast, where we talk all things pharmacy. Today's topic tackles opioid agonist maintenance therapy, or OAMT for short. I'm excited for this episode as a community pharmacist who has only become involved with OAMT in the last couple months. Although I've learned a lot in those few months, I'm excited to welcome our guest Kelda, who can teach us a little more. Kelda is currently the project coordinator with Safer Meds NL, but like most pharmacists, she's held many roles, one of which is being a pharmacist at the Opioid Treatment Center. Welcome, Kelda. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you. So why OAMT? Why are we talking about this today? And I guess that's my fault. I've been diving into the world of OAMT and dispensing methadone and Suboxone in my community practice. I've become really interested in this topic. And I thought, what better way to learn more than to tell some stories? Stories will carry meaning, stories help us understand, and they connect us. And that's why today we'll be sharing some stories from our experiences in this episode. Let's backtrack a little and talk about the history of opioid addiction, which isn't a new phenomenon, but instead it's a very old one, and in fact it's been around since opioids were first used and since the discovery of these properties from the opium poppy. And wars have been fought over opium, and people and populations have been harmed in the process. There were the opium wars in China in the 1800s, as the British wanted to open up trade of opium into China. As a result of the wars, the opium trade was allowed to flourish in the country and led to millions of people becoming addicted. By the mid to late 1800s, it was well known that opioids were addictive. By that time, there was opium, directly from the plant, morphine and codeine extracted, and possibly others. Ingestion of opium gave mild analgesic effects, and it was used medicinally. But people learned that smoking it delivered the contents of the drug faster and it became the method of choice for recreational use. Noticing the recreational use patterns and perhaps some overprescribing, regulations started popping up. In 1868, the UK passed the Pharmacy Act that led to the regulation of pharmacists and the sale of what they called poisons. And of course, opioids were included in the list. And I recently had the opportunity to visit the Royal Pharmaceutical Society in London, and their museum has a number of these artifacts. And I have to give a shout out to our own pharmacy museum down on Water Street here in St. John's, which is a great place to see and learn about drugs and medicines in our province. Anyways, despite the Pharmacy Act in the UK, opioids were still widely prescribed and used. And then heroin was synthesized in 1874, and eventually it was turned into an over-the-counter cough suppressant in Germany in 1898. While addiction was somewhat on scientists' minds, It became a concern in the mid-1910s when regulations started to creep in to restrict sale and use. One funny little fact about opioids, they were actually touted as treatments for chronic alcoholism. In 1889, Black wrote, On the score of economy, the morphine habit is by far the better. The regular whiskey drinker can be made content in his craving for stimulation, at least for quite a long time, on two or three grains of morphine a day, divided into appropriate portions and given at regular intervals. With the ability to inject medications, better needles, better sterility, drugs can be more easily absorbed into the body. This can lead to stronger, faster, and typically shorter effects, which then lead to withdrawal symptoms and the body needing more drug. We talked about cannabis in an episode last year and how starting in the 1920s, there was widespread advertising and stigma associated with its use. The same, I think, goes with opioid addiction. 
There is undoubtedly a stigma surrounding opioid addiction in our society, even around the methadone and suboxone programs. Kelda, have you experienced this? You're definitely right. Stigma is something that still exists and something we hear about on a regular basis. I do think we are making huge improvements to educate and raise awareness. And it is really important to recognize that addiction doesn't discriminate. It could affect me, it could affect you, it could affect our loved ones. And so this certainly puts things into perspective. And I think it's really important that we continue to raise awareness around stigma so that we can overcome stigma in our practice. Absolutely. And I've definitely seen the stigma in practice. The patients that I have on methadone and suboxone come from all walks of life and can certainly attest to the powerful nature of the addiction. As we have seen, one response to addiction is the regulation and restriction of these products. Yet, as we know, this doesn't solve the problem. These medications are addicting, and those that have been using them will feel a strong urge to get the products despite any regulations. Regulation and restrictions aren't always the answer for people who use these medications legally and therapeutically, and those that obtain them illicitly. And you may have heard some recent news in the U.S. of pharmaceutical companies settling with governments as they're being sued for the societal expenses of opioid addiction. This litigious environment in the U.S. is not the same in Canada. And let's think about how we can help rather than assign blame. And I hope you don't get us wrong. Opioids are useful medications and modern surgery, medical procedures, and pain treatment would not be possible without them. And here's our first story. I'm often asked why I find this area of practice so rewarding. And while there are many, many reasons, when I sit back and really reflected on it, it always comes back to someone's personal story and the change that can be made, which is something I've witnessed time and time again when someone is heard and supported on their journey towards recovery. I've heard many gut-wrenching stories over the years, but a couple resonate more than others. One story that I will never forget was a young man who presented for treatment for opioid use disorder. At this point, he had hit rock bottom. His drug of choice was morphine, but he was injecting multiple opioids along with many other substances of abuse. As a result of the risky behaviors, he had hepatitis C among a host of other health problems and had many run-ins with the law. When I asked about his life story, I was told that at the age of five, his mother gave him Gravol and Demerol so that he would sleep better during the day. Unfortunately for this person, their life story as a child was written at a very young age. He had never gone to school, had zero family support, was living on the streets, had very follow-up on his health, and to be honest, never had a fair shot at anything in life. I'm sharing this story for a couple of reasons. One, because when we talk about opioid agonist maintenance treatment, it's really important to always treat the patient sitting in front of us. The goals of treatment would be different for everyone. For this person, his priority was ensuring he had food, stable housing, and reconnecting with the health system. Really, the basics of life. But these goals will change over time, and it's a humbling privilege to be able to help patients along this journey. Pharmacists can help people like this in so many ways, and it really starts with welcoming the patients with a smile and listening to their personal story. Okay, let's talk about the pharmacology of opioids and why people can get dependent on them. There's no doubt that opiates are highly addictive drugs, and opiate addiction is a possibility for people who use these even as prescribed. 
Kelda, how would you explain how opioids work? Well, opioid agonists, such as methadone, morphine, heroin, fentanyl, they mimic our body's natural neurotransmitters, the endorphins, on the opioid receptors in the brain. They bind to these receptors to exert their action. There are several subtypes of opioid receptors in the central nervous system, the three most important being the mu, delta, and kappa receptors. Many of the effects of opioids, including analgesia and euphoria, are due to the effects at the mu receptors. So we can see the effect of these neurotransmitters, and there's that addicting part, but that's not what kills people. Opioids are seen as depressants and cause depression of the brain centers responsible for a range of functions, including breathing and heart functioning. Deaths by overdose are almost always a result of respiratory depression. Opioid overdose is characterized by sedation, slurred speech, lack of coordination, pinpoint pupils, sweating, nodding off, and respiratory depression and cardiac arrest. There are many risk factors which put people who use opioids at risk of opioid overdose, including the variations of the potency of different drugs being used, the routes of administration uh, being administered IV would have a higher risk of overdose, the time since the last use, which is something that's really important to consider when somebody has been recently released from a correctional facility or hospital. Timing also plays a huge role as there is an increased risk of overdose if taking shortly before onset of sleep. And then of course a huge risk factor for overdose is using other sedating substances um, such as alcohol or benzodiazepines at the same time as opioids. Yes, and we'll talk about how all of these factors are important in uh, opioid addiction and the kinds of treatments that we use. But we do need to touch a little bit on dependence, which includes both physical and psychological dependence. So substance dependence can be summarized by the four C's, which are consequences, so basically continued use despite negative consequences, cravings, compulsiveness, so a compulsion to use, and a loss of control over the use. So this is a great place to distinguish control use and compulsive use of opioids. Controlled use, meaning therapeutic use, versus compulsive and uncontrolled use of the substance that continues regardless of negative consequences. It is so important to note that opioid dependence is more than just tolerance and withdrawal. A person who uses morphine, for example, therapeutically to control pain may develop tolerance to some of its effects and develop withdrawal symptoms when he or she stops. However, they should not be diagnosed as opioid-dependent unless the criteria is met. Physical dependence can be viewed as including both withdrawal and tolerance. Tolerance meaning a decrease in the effect of a drug when it's continued with its continued use. So basically, over time, a person needs to take increasing amounts of the substance to achieve the same effect. Tolerance may even occur with a therapeutic use, and the time it takes to develop can differ considerably from one person to another. The interesting thing is tolerance to the analgesic effects of opioids tend to develop very slowly, so people using opioids for chronic pain can often remain on the same dose for many months or years. The same can be said for tolerance to the psychoactive effects of opioids which develop quickly. When you hear someone has a high tolerance to opioids, this means they can function on large doses of opioids. However, tolerance is quickly lost once a person stops taking the opioids or significantly reduces the dose which then puts them at risk for respiratory depression. So I think we can all envision someone who is withdrawing from opioids, but Gilda, can you explain what the opioid withdrawal symptoms would be, and are there any effects outside of the central nervous system? 
Opioid withdrawal usually presents as a constellation of symptoms, and it will be different for each person. Most common symptoms are dysphoric and irritable mood, intense anxiety, nausea, vomiting. Person will often present with muscle aches, teary eyes, and runny nose. Um, goosebumps. They'll have sweating, chills. Um, they could have diarrhea, and they often um, have difficulty sleeping. So opioid withdrawal is extremely unpleasant, and I've often heard people say that they really feel like they're dying. The important thing is, while they no doubt feel like they are dying, um, in an otherwise healthy individual, opioid withdrawal is not life-threatening. With this said, there are circumstances where risk associated with opioid withdrawal may lead to death. So I alluded earlier to the fact of a loss in tolerance, which can lead to possible overdose if a person relapses on the same level of opioid use that they had prior to stopping, and which is a really important counseling point for pharmacists to tell their patients. And of course, opioid withdrawal can also cause fetal effects during pregnancy, and depending on the trimester, could lead to spontaneous abortion, miscarriage, and fetal distress leading to death. Opioids also cause additional um, effects outside of the central nervous system, which would include things which I mentioned briefly earlier, such as sweating, constipation, urinary retention, uh, decrease in GI motility. So, Calda, you talked about people um, of all walks of life, and, and basically anybody can um, have an opioid addiction. Are there any certain circumstances where somebody would be more at risk of an opioid addiction? Right, so similar to any other disease, there are definitely factors that put a person um, or make a person more susceptible to substance dependence. Um, and these would include things like genetics, um, certainly the availability of a substance, a concurrent mental health problems such as a mood disorder, schizophrenia, which is definitely something we commonly see in practice, a feeling of hopelessness and alienation, uh, if there's unstable living conditions and unemployment, and also environmental influences, influences, which is something we hear about frequently from patients um, in, in, with regards to trauma in their past, uh, whether it be sexual, emotional, or physical, um, and then a lack of support uh, to overcome this trauma in their life. Having said this, um, having these risk factors doesn't necessarily mean that somebody will become addicted, but it certainly does increase the odds uh, of somebody becoming addicted to opioids. And the more the risk factors that are present, the greater the chance an individual will develop the addiction. In the last couple months, I've certainly realized that patients do come from various walks of life when they are on OAMT. Some patients have been prescribed opioids for pain conditions. And one patient in particular I'm thinking about had a serious motor vehicle accident in her early 20s and quickly became addicted to Percocet when using this for her pain. She recognized her addiction herself and did seek out treatment, and she's been doing really well on the Suboxone program ever since. Other patients find OAMT for other reasons. Like Kelda mentioned, some of my clients have been incarcerated for drug-related offenses and are put on OAMT once they're released to help them tackle this addiction and to change their lifestyle. Others have picked up opioids when they were teens and experimenting with friends. Others have had their children removed from their care due to their addiction and have really sought out OAMT to be a better caregiver for their families. One story in particular that really kind of was heartbreaking for me was actually yesterday. 
So I was met at the door of my pharmacy by one of my methadone clients who has always been there bright and early to get her dosed so that she could catch the bus and get to work on time. However, yesterday she told me that she actually lost her job because her employer somehow found out that she was taking methadone. This broke my heart because I really feel the stigma surrounding methadone caused her to lose her job when she was a fully capable and responsible employee. It shows that we have a lot of work to do in decreasing this stigma. Methadone was discovered in Germany around 1939 by scientists at the large pharmaceutical company IG Farben, and they named it Amidone. Now, after the war, the company's records were taken by British or American scientists, and in the late 1940s, several companies started making the drug under various trade names. Methadone was one of them, and Dolaphine was another. Um, and that one was probably more well-known, and that one was made by the Eli Lilly company. Now, at first it was labeled as non-addictive, similar to what we thought of other opioids. And you'll find a number of documentaries and articles that talk about this, um, essentially, each time we have a new opioid with different pharmacological properties, we tend to think of them as different than other opioids. But I think we can agree that opioids in general can potentially lead to dependence and addiction now. And in the late 1940s, studies showed that methadone too had addiction potential. But it was also recognized in the late 1940s that it was useful for the treatment of opioid abstinence syndrome, that's what they called it then, and in the 50s, it began to be used, but not without fear, stigma, and government resistance, at least in the US. Even with all that clinical evidence in the mid-1960s, that stigma was still there. By 1968, the term methadone maintenance treatment was adopted, but there were still restrictions, and as one physician wrote, the early rapid expansion of methadone maintenance was tolerated by the public mostly for its prospect as a reduction in crime. Before methadone, some physicians would use morphine as the treatment for opioid addiction, so it was a form of substitution therapy, but there was risk in doing so, because it was not commonly accepted practice and the legal system was unkind to them. Slowly, over the next three decades, it was more firmly established as legitimate care for patients, and access to treatment became somewhat easier. Buprenorphine was discovered in 1966. I guess this was a time of a lot of research into opioids because the opioid-based antagonists, nelorphine and naltrexone, were also studied for their role in addiction treatment. But buprenorphine wasn't originally thought of in that matter because scientists were still trying to find drugs that worked as analgesics but did not have the associated side effects of opioids. In the 70s, after classifying buprenorphine as a partial agonist, meaning it blocked the effect of morphine but still had some agonist, mainly analgesic effects, it was postulated to be a medication for treating addiction. However, it still took over 30 years before it was approved as a treatment for addiction. Even though practitioners were using it off-label for addiction, admittedly, there were problems of abuse of this medication as well, and government regulation and lack of clear indication and direction for use in addiction made it harder to adopt. France became the first to approve buprenorphine for opiate addiction in the mid-1990s without restriction on prescribing, and other countries followed in the five to 10 years or so after. During this long history, Different dosage forms of buprenorphine were created, and most common for addiction treatment now is the combination of buprenorphine and naloxone, which is intended to reduce diversion or misuse, and commonly now known as suboxone. Suboxone 
So I have a story of a patient or client who slowly reduced their methadone dose over three years and eventually stopped it completely. During this time, social support, counseling, and pharmacy support was important, and developing that rapport with them and acknowledging the challenges they faced and the necessarily slow process of that dose decrease was also very important. And I think for me, seeing that they also had other medical conditions like diabetes or high blood pressure, and although they had a past opioid addiction, it wasn't really their identity. And seeing beyond that, um, even though it was seeing it from a medical perspective, I think was important. So here was the story of someone who eventually stopped treatment, but every person is different. And this stresses another point, which is that individual goals matter. So why do we have OAMT programs? I guess my real question is, why do people just not stop? This is a really great question, and I really wish it was as simple as just stopping. Addictive substances, including opioids, reinforce use by creating an urge to use more. Substances are more addictive if they have rapid onset of action, provide a powerful euphoric effect, have a short duration of action, they quickly lead to tolerance and withdrawal, and they increase the level of dopamine in the reward center of the brain, all of which opioids do really well. Interestingly enough, usually a person's initial experience with the opioids does not produce euphoria. Often people experience anxiety or depression, or if they're opioid naive, they experience nausea and vomiting. However, after time, after a person has been on an opioid for a long time, as we spoke of earlier, they develop a tolerance. So basically, the brain gets used to the amount of drug that they are taking and they need more of that drug to get the same good feeling. So essentially, after time, people continue to use drugs just to feel normal. So why not just give the antagonist once the withdrawal is managed? Now, Trexone is an opioid receptor antagonist, so therefore it blocks the effects of any opioid a person may take, thereby blocking the pleasurable and pain-killing effects of opioids. So it's not frequently used in practice, um, but it is generally, if it is used, it's generally for individuals who were previously depend, dependent on opioids, but who have had success at detoxification and they are t- attempting to remain abstinent. Most benefit is seen with really highly motivated and healthy people. And in order for naltrexone to work, people had to be compliant. Uh, So most times, medication adherence tends to be a big barrier to successful treatment with naltrexone. So we now often hear of the term harm reduction. Kelda, can you describe what that is? Harm reduction focuses on reducing substance use-related harms. So I really like the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, or CAMH, definition. And they refer to it as any policy or program which is designed to reduce drug-related harm without requiring the cessation of drug use. And these interventions can be targeted at individuals, families, communities, and society. So strategies may be geared at reducing the amount of use by reducing supply, for example, restricting the availability like we do with alcohol or nicotine, or reducing drug demand through education and treatment. But by far, most harm reduction strategies are geared at reducing the harms of drug use through either reducing unsafe administration with plain needle supplies, promoting less risky routes of administration, such um, as oral use versus IV use, create a safer substance using area, which we're often seeing or often hearing about now with safe injection sites, 
And then of course promoting the appropriate use of opioid agonist maintenance treatment and reducing harms of overdose with naloxone. So harm reduction is really basically a practical, patient-driven, and non-judgmental approach to substance use, and it really accepts that drug use is going to happen, um, and that abstinence is not a realistic goal for everyone, and we really need to meet patients where they are along their continuum of care and recovery. That's great, and you mentioned the opioid agonist treatment, and, and obviously that's what we're talking about today. Um, so what's special about methadone and buprenorphine that, that make it good for this? Methadone and buprenorphine play a really important role um, with the harm reduction approach for our opioid use disorder. I think it's really important that people recognize that they are, or that methadone and buprenorphine are both harm reduction approaches. And so that's really important when we consider outcomes and look at goals for people. Opioids are absorbed by the body at varying rates depending on the route of administration, the type of opioid use, and its bioavailability. For example, heroin injected intravenously will take effect within seconds and its effect may last anywhere between three to six hours. On the other hand, methadone is taken orally and is absorbed in the GI tract within about 30 minutes and its effects last 24 hours. Similarly, buprenorphine's half-life is anywhere between 24 to 42 hours depending on the patient. So essentially, we don't get the same high and low with methadone and buprenorphine as we would when somebody is injecting heroin. Once a person is stabilized at the right dose, methadone and buprenorphine should suppress opioid withdrawal symptoms, significantly reduce cravings, not induce intoxication such as sedation and euphoria, and reduce any euphoric effect from other opioids. So who are the ideal patients, I guess, or candidates for OAMT? Who should be getting it? So I think it's really important, as Mike mentioned earlier, to recognize that opioids do have a place in therapy. Um, they may be indicated for short-term acute pain, for surgery, or perhaps, uh, and also to help manage cancer pain. Uh, but opioids are really strong drugs, and they're not the best way to treat long-term chronic pain, such as arthritis, low back pain, and, and frequent headaches. So this is a really great place to revisit what I mentioned earlier about the controlled use versus compulsive use of opioids. And as I said, if somebody is using morphine or another opioid therapeutically to control pain, they may develop tolerance to some of its effects and develop withdrawal symptoms. However, they wouldn't be diagnosed with opioid-dependent treatment unless they meet the criteria for, the criteria for opioid dependency. Uh, so they would not be appropriate candidates for opioid agonist and treatment. Initial screening needs to identify opioid dependency before initiating treatment. So generally speaking, candidates will have an extensive history of opioid use, be physically dependent on opioids, and have, and have been unsuccessful in other forms of treatment for opioid dependency. And we really look back at the four C's, which I mentioned, also mentioned earlier. So candidates are somebody that has um, continued use despite negative consequences, they have really intense cravings for opioids, they have a compulsion to use, and they have lost control over their use. One thing that has certainly rang true for me is that not all patients have the goal of stopping OAMT in the near future. So I think when I first learned about methadone and Suboxone, I had always thought there was an end date or kind of like a quit date when we, can, when we think about uh, smoking cessation. And I really thought that there was always a plan to stop OAMT, but I've realized that in a lot of patients, it's actually safer uh, to continue on with OAMT for the long term. 
I've had patients, yes, that have been on OAMT and have worked their way down and are no longer on the program. However, I've also experienced that there are patients that have been on the program for 20 plus years and are certainly much safer and are certainly doing much better on the program than they would suspected to be off of the program. So I think we really need to change the way we think about that as well. Um, For our patients, sometimes it is better for them to continue on this harm reduction strategy than to really push them to come off of it. And you make a really good point, Kathy, um, and something that uh, we'll get to now is how successful um, is methadone and how successful is buprenorphine? I think when we look at the success of buprenorphine and methadone, we really need to first take a step back and consider what exactly is the definition of success. Um, And this is going to be different for every single individual. Some people um, will enter into treatment with the expectation uh, to eventually come off of methadone or buprenorphine. Um, However, for others, that's not a realistic goal. Uh, So success for that person might be that they no longer use IV drugs, um, they might become connected with the healthcare system again, um, and it might mean that they now get out of bed at a reasonable hour. Uh, But over time, those goals change for those people, and it's a really rewarding experience to see somebody who couldn't get out of the bed during daylight hours who now all of a sudden can um, and wants to go back to uh, work or school and put home and be productive um, in whatever way they want to be productive. Um, So I think that's really important to think about when we're looking at how successful are these interventions. Um, And sometimes we hear people ask, well, what's the cure rate um, with methadone um, and buprenorphine? And I think we can compare that to any other chronic condition um, when such as dyslipidemia or hypertension. Um, And with those conditions, we really look at the long-term treatment plan. Um, And it may involve stepping up at a certain point in time, and it may involve, uh, you know, decreasing treatment at a certain certain point in time. We really just need to meet patients uh, where they are at um, and what their treatment goals are. Um, And that's really how we're going to define uh, success with buprenorphine and methadone. So the choice of treatment for a person definitely depends on a number of factors, including the severity uh, and type of substance use problem, um, financial considerations, of course, level of support that they have from their family, friends, and others, uh, but primarily how motivated a person is for change. Um, And again, it comes back to what that person wants for their treatment, um, and it really needs to be a decision, a shared decision between uh, healthcare providers and patients. So I've also heard about some new things like uh, the buprenorphine implant. Yeah, so that's a really exciting, I guess, emerging emerging therapy. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen, but recently there was a story in the news about a local physician in Newfoundland um, who who did the first implant here in the province. So basically it requires a physician to insert four um, rods containing buprenorphine under the skin of a patient's arm. The rods then release controlled of buprenorphine for up to six months as opposed to taking it in a daily um, as the boxone. There is the option to have a second set of rods implanted in the other arm after removing the first set which would be a total of 12 months of therapy. 
Um, so these are designed for patients who are already stabilized on about uh, 8 milligrams of buprenorphine um, and is an option for those who cannot attend a pharmacy daily or weekly, rural patients or those who work away. However, I guess there are some limitations in the sense that because right now it's only uh, approved for a total of 12 months of therapy, that's definitely going to limit um, candidates, appropriate candidates. And of course, it has to be somebody who is uh, highly motivated um, for, again, for that reason. It is super exciting to see uh, an immersion therapy come to the province like this, and um, it's great to have so many options available to patients uh, with opioid use disorder. My second story is about Suboxone and the difficulties one patient had to go through in order to get their medication. So when someone drops a pill or misplaces some medication, the pharmacy is often called. And while I was in practice, this was a fairly regular request from different patients. Say they spilled a child's antibiotic or they knocked over an open bottle of stomach medication. And often replacing it for them was quick and effortless. But what happens when it's medication that's prescribed with specific dispensing restrictions like Suboxone. So this patient had take-home medication, um, and uh, so they were taking home a week of medication at a time, and for whatever reason, they had misplaced it. But ultimately, they would not have medication for at least a few days. Now, we know that Suboxone's effects generally last for a few days, but that sort of explanation doesn't help to alleviate the anxiety and the patient's concern. And it would have been easy to put the onus on the patient to find their doctor to solve this problem, but that doesn't help anyone. And then it doesn't work because maybe they can't get there, maybe they can't afford to get there, or maybe the clinic is closed. And all three of these reasons present for this patient. And of course, the emergency room won't do anything for them either. So fundamentally, it was no different than someone who had lost their, say, blood thinner medication. Both situations can end up being life-threatening, and for me in the pharmacy, it was important to have that relationship with the clinics and prescribers so that we can anticipate these things happening and have plans in place, and really having responsibility as healthcare professionals to solve these problems. And because of this, I was able to get some replacement for the patient. So Kelda, what does OAMT look like here in Newfoundland? Well, Kathy, there's a lot of great work happening in recent years, both federally and provincially, um, as governments, healthcare regulators, healthcare providers, and communities have been really working towards reducing opioid-related harms uh, across Canada, of course, and here in Newfoundland. Um, and there's really been a focus on increasing access to effective treatments for opioid use disorder and also the prevention of harmful opioid use through safe prescribing and increasing public awareness. So the provincial government has taken a number of actions to address the opioid crisis here in Newfoundland and Labrador um, through legislation, uh, funding, and in partnership with other stakeholders and community organizations. While not a complete list, some of the activities that they have been involved with um, include the safe prescribing course for healthcare professionals. Uh, they have a province-wide naloxone take-home kit program, naloxone community pop-up tents, improved access to Suboxone as an alternative drug to methadone, and of course the pharmacy network and the introduction of the prescription monitoring program. A recent Newfoundland Labrador Pharmacy Board communication indicated that since 2017, here in the province, the number of community pharmacies offering opioid agonist maintenance treatment has increased by 35%. 
So as a pharmacist, this is something I'm really proud to say that our profession has stepped up to the challenge. I'm not sure if you saw a recent CBC news story which reported that opioid prescriptions have decreased in Ontario, BC and Saskatchewan. So I thought this was a really encouraging uh, story to see, uh, especially now with the opioid crisis being front and centre, and hopefully we will see similar um, stats here in our province. So we have that 35% uh, increase, which is fantastic. Um, Kelda, how do pharmacies and pharmacists get involved? Pharmacists have a huge role in opioid use disorder, um, and as with any other chronic condition, our main uh, role would, will be to promote individuals getting the most benefit from uh, their medication. So for opioid use disorder, a huge part of this would be involve supporting harm reduction and recovery. Pharmacists often have the most contact with individuals receiving treatment, um, and so we have a pivotal role in opioid use disorder and opioid, opioid agonist maintenance treatment. This can go anywhere from providing information regarding potential treatments and how to access the programs, um, how to assess prescriptions, prepare medications, uh, provide witness doses and taking home and take home doses, reviewing a medication profile, uh, counseling on medication and explaining how the medications work and side effects. but most importantly, we are at a really great place where we can see positive change in behavior and self-care and adherence, and we can report back these positive progress to other healthcare providers that are in their circle of care. And I guess as someone who's just recently gotten involved in the OAMT, I can certainly echo your comments about how rewarding it can be. Um, It is super rewarding to see somebody's life completely change because of um, their access to OAMT. Over the years, I've heard stories of people I know who have overdosed and died from opioid use. I'm sharing this because it really makes things real. Overdose happens and it can lead to death. And stories like this really reinforce the importance and the need to be constantly communicating with our patients so that they know the risks associated with opioid agonist maintenance treatment and polysubstance use, for example, with alcohol or sedatives. We really need to get to know patients so that we can better recognize red flags and do everything in our power to prevent it. We have a profound and pivotal role in a patient's recovery, um, which goes far beyond the dispensing administration of the therapies. If I could provide one piece of, of advice, it would be to always let the principles of harm reduction guide how we practice OAMT and how we view outcomes and goals. What success looks like for one person is completely different from another. We really need to start with short-term goals. And like I mentioned earlier, for some people, this may be mean just getting out of bed in the morning. We need to remember the stages of change. Change is rarely linear, relapse will likely occur, and pharmacists should not underestimate the difference they can make to a person's recovery as long as they are supported and guided in that process. Thank you all for listening to our podcast today on OAMT. And there's one thing we may have left out in this discussion as we obviously focused on the medications, But the psychosocial treatment of addiction is also very important um, as well. Um, I want to give a a big thank you to Kelda for being our guest here today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I have to say I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I'm really excited (laughs) to see that you're covering OAMT and OPC's disorder, and I'm excited to see what's next. Kelda, it's been a 
great pleasure to have you. I'm glad that you are a fan of the podcast. And like Mike said, I think we did leave out some other aspects. And of course, we are pharmacists, so we focused on that. But we do need to recognize that when a patient is starting on OAMT, a lot of things in their life has changed. Not only that they may have to come to the pharmacy almost every day, but they've likely had to change their whole lifestyle, their friend group, perhaps some family members, and all kinds of different connections. So there's a huge psychosocial aspect to it as well. So stay tuned for our next episode of The Med Thread. We'll be coming back to you around Christmas time for a special Christmas edition. As always, you can send us any comments or suggestions for future episodes at our email at medthread at mon.ca. Thanks for listening.